Well, at one point, her stats were super, super low, and her, like, oxygen tank runs out, and I'm driving on the freeway. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Picket Fence with Chelsea. And yep, I'm still Chelsea. This month is February, and around these parts, it is a special month. If you listen to my first episode, you'll know that my son was born with a congenital heart defect. And February is Heart Month. So if you see me around and I'm wearing red, bright red lipstick, bright red shirt, anything red, I should be wearing red at least somewhere on my body this month to celebrate Heart Month. And I decided we're going to also focus on Heart Month for the month of February as well on the podcast. So I have a guest. Her name is Tana Reichel, and I met her when I was in the ICU with Jackson. She's actually one of the first Heart Moms that I met, and I didn't really know it was a thing that you could go into each other's rooms and become friends because Jackson kept me very close by his side in the hospital all the time, but I do remember sneaking out, getting away, and being pulled in by the lovely Tana. So I'm going to let her introduce herself to you. I have four kids. So I have three girls and a boy, and um, my husband, we met in college, and my brother used to date one of his other cousins. And so and it's kind of kind of confusing, but my <laughs> brother dated his cousin and his cousin's sister, so his his other cousin, whatever, their sisters. And they were, she kept saying, you need to meet him. You need to meet him. And so we met my freshman year of college. And then again, we met my junior year of college. Um, he ended up coming to the same college me at Grand Canyon. And then it was kind of, he was just different than anyone I had ever dated. He's just a super good guy. I have a really good family, huge family. I come from a really big family. I'm one of four. He only has one brother, but his mom's side is huge, um, has just tons of people. I think he has like, I think, I think it's like 13 or 15 or something like that, like first cousins. And they're just really close. So it's really cool. And then my dad's the youngest out of 11. So I have a massive family with tons of cousins, which really comes to play into our story too, because we just had just a ton of support, which I think obviously carried us through our journey. I did used to be a teacher. So I taught high school, it's kind of funny to say it out loud, but high school PE online. But nowadays, it's really not that weird because yeah, lots of things are happening. But yeah, when I used to teach, no one knew about that. Um, but yeah, it was high school PE online. I did it for like eight or nine years. Now I stay at home with my kids and I volunteer in their school a lot and I'm just super involved and I coach all their sports. Were you an athlete? Yes. So I played college softball. My husband played college baseball and then he actually transferred over to a school in New Mexico and played football as well. So we both come from a sports background. So they're married now and they had a few kids. Their oldest, Monroe, four, and Quincy was two, when they found out they were pregnant with their daughter, Lincoln, and got Lincoln's diagnosis. But before that, Tana has a quick story. Kind of a little backstory that I like to tell is my husband and I went on our, oh golly, I don't remember what year anniversary it was, but we always go on a yearly trip and went to Nashville, Tennessee. And I think I knew I was pregnant at that point, but I remember talking to him and just saying, I kind of just feel like something in me, we have to get back on like a routine going to church, which I was baptized um, when I was eight as um, LDS. 
And then my dad was Catholic. My um, mom's side was Mormon. So I was baptized as a Mormon. But then when we, as we went, as we progressed through life, like we just got busier and we just kind of fell out of like the, the routine of church and whatnot. So circling back to married life, we would go, but every once in a while and the girls would go, but you know, it's when we were in town or it was when we weren't tired or whatever it was. So in Nashville, I kind of just was like, I feel like something in my heart is tugging that we need to get back to church and let's make it a vow. Like when we get back, like we need to go start going like religiously and the girls need to be back. And we were already attending, but sporadically CCD, which is right by our house. So Christian church. So where he was like, yeah, I totally believe it. That's totally, you know, whatever. So the next week, you know, we got back, we went to church and then my husband turned 30 on that coming, that same coming week. So it was all kind of like all back. So they get back from their trip and it's time for their anatomy scan. They don't usually find out the gender of their kids. They like to surprise themselves. And what the heck, they already had two girls. Who cares if it was another one? But they get there and the tech is taking a little bit longer than normal. The tech is taking a super long time. I think that God for sure gave me Lincoln because I do not worry. I'm just not a worry parent. I am not someone to like fret over when my kids fall or if I, I just don't like I just am like super lighthearted on things anyway. So she's taking a long time and I do start to be like kind of taking forever. Like I got things to do, you know, what are we doing? So she kind of finishes. She's like, I just need to go back to the heart one more time. I'm like, okay, whatever. So then all of a sudden she says, the doctor needs to see you. Like my gut knew, but my non-wearing brain was like, fine. My doctor just misses me. <laughs> my husband's like, yeah, no, this isn't going to be good. So she comes in the room and she's like, okay, so yeah. So um, we see some defects in the heart. And I'm like, defects? Okay. Like I've heard of people saying there's a hole in the heart, whatever. She's like, yeah, we're going to need you to get you into maternal fetal medicine doctor and we're gonna need to get an echo and I'm just in my head going for like a hole in the heart like don't those close by birth you know so she kind of like didn't give us like a whole lot of information mostly because knowing now it was too complex for her to even like state what was going on so we go back into the room she's like the the tech wants to get a few more pictures I'm like okay so we go back into the room I'm like all right I need to find out the gender now because like I'm not, I've got, oh, no, and there's going to be enough surprises I need to know. So they're like, oh, it's a girl. I'm like, okay, of course it is, you know. <laughs> they got into the maternal fetal medicine doctor the next day. Tana was still a little in denial, thinking this was an appointment for her and her pregnancy, not for the baby. And she tried to convince her husband to go alone. Luckily, he went, and it was a long, hard appointment, and they left with a diagnosis, and thanks to the doctors, little hope. She had six heart defects. So she had heterotaxy, which is like its own syndrome in itself with a chromosome defect as well, which is 18P addition and depletion and deletion. So it was kind of like a tricky one. In like retrospect, when they showed us all the little DNA strands, like it was like teeny what was wrong. And like that's what caused all this, which is insane that that can caused it and especially because we never do the genetic testing because I was like it doesn't matter whatever you give us we're going to keep it just shows that tiny little depletion in addition is gonna can cause a lot of issues so heterotaxy and she had um, double outlet right ventricle transposition of the great arteries pulmonary atresia a ASV a um, VSD or ASV VSD so two holes in the heart of each yeah side and then double outlet oh interrupted IVC so basically she was functioning on half of a heart 
but she wasn't con- considered a hypoplast. Like she wasn't, that wasn't her diagnosis. So with heterotaxy, you have midline liver, no spleen, two right lobed lungs or left lobed, either way, which um, you just find out like, it's crazy that these kids can live with this kind of stuff. But basically all your organs are just like a jumbled mess. If I'm being honest, listening to this diagnosis made me feel a little guilty and mostly just lucky that Jackson's heart diagnosis was so much less complex. A lot of odds were against her. So basically the um, MFM was like, so if she makes it to even utero, like even makes it to her due date, she's probably not going to. I was like, okay. And she's like, and then if she makes it to her due date, she's probably not going to survive first. Okay. And she's like, and then if she does make it through that, if she makes it a year, she has like a 70% chance of dying. Like just straight up like said it like that. I was like, already then. So a competitive athlete in me, I was like, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to show you that she's going to survive this. Looking back, I had no control over any of that. Like, I know that like I had nothing, but I was like, I'm going to do everything in my power, you know, to prove this doctor wrong because it was just a really hard appointment. They did an amnio study to check for other abnormalities, and they had to do an ultrasound while they put the needle in, and Tana watched the needle almost hit the baby. She said it was an insane experience, and it was crazy to watch. It was just a blur. Like, I did it the same day. We were there for six hours. Like, I was crying in the parking lot, like, sobbing, like, what are we going to do? Like, I can't even imagine, like, aborting her because, like she's living in my belly right now. And so we just decided, like, we just prayed together in the parking lot. And we just like, if God gave us this baby, like, we're going to, I'm going to keep it in my belly until God or her or whoever decides that she's done. So I'm not going to make that choice for her. She or God or whoever wants to make that choice. It's on, it's on them. So that kind of helped take that burden off me. So if anyone's listening for that, like, to make that decision or like that you made the right decision or not right decision. Like at this point, like we were like, no matter what happens, like this is in the higher powers. This isn't, this isn't our decisions. Yeah. All we care about is that we're, we're giving her, like we're doing stuff for her and not to her. And that was like our biggest slogan of like, we learned another heart mom gave me such good advice. And she was like, anything that we were making decision on, whether it was surgery or, um, another procedure, going to the cath lab or, you know, probing her, whatever it was, all we kept thinking was, are we doing this for her or to her? So that was like what we tried to, throughout our journey, try to remember. So, but when I left those appointments, I never got like these warm and fuzzies, like that someone was trying to help us. So that was kind of disappointing. So I'm just like, gosh, like, what do we do? So then I started to research. I was like, okay, what do I do? So I started to join Facebook groups online. While doing research, she found herself connected with a heart mom that told her she should go get a second opinion. And I didn't realize that a second opinion meant just relating different with a doctor, which anyone that tells me their story, I'm like, go get a second opinion. And they're like, huh? I'm like, I promise you that was like what changed our lives. She compared this more to like therapy. You know, when you go to a therapist and it just doesn't quite sit well with you and then you try a different one and it's amazing. But that other therapist is amazing for so many other people's. Other people's, wow. (laughs) Anyway, 
I think this idea is super cool. I've never applied this to regular doctors, like whether it be a doctor for your kids or for yourself. We should really think about getting second opinions more often. Not that it'll change the diagnosis, but just the way that we can relate with doctors in a better way. We don't have to just trust the first person we walk into. We get to decide and we get to be in control of our own health care. So I really like this viewpoint. We decided to get a second opinion, and we drove out to Tempe to Dr. Stock, and I'm, like, plugging him because he's literally a godsend. He's just the most compassionate doctor. He literally saved us. So we went and saw him, and, like, immediately I left and had a huge sigh of relief. And he, like, was very blunt, too, but just the way he delivered it to us was way different. While the other doctors were like, let's talk to hospice. We need to talk to palliative care. We need no hope. It was more of like, let's talk about end of life rather than like, let's try to get her some help and then talk about end of life. Living here in Arizona, they did consult with PCH, Phoenix Children's Hospital, and the head surgeon was actually on his way out and the hospital was in the middle of a transition and she was so complex that they decided to take Dr. Stock's advice and to head to a different hospital in California. Um, He's like, okay, so she's super complex and you're going to need to go to like the best surgeon of the best. And he's like, here's your options. You can go to Boston. You can go to um, CHOP, Philadelphia. You could go to Stanford in California or Lucille Packard. It's in Northern Cal. After weighing their options and realizing California was the closest and the best fit for them, they decided to have a consult with the surgeon there. And he aligned really well with what they were looking for. We talked to him and he's obviously like a world renowned surgeon. People fly from all over the country. And he told us that out of a complexity of 10, she was an eight uh, for a surgery and basically gave us like the layout of everything and what his like goals would be and what he would try to do and all that. Um, So after we left the conversation, we're like, okay, this seems like what we want to do. So I had obviously had to, keep collecting information, had to go out there and meet um, multiple doctors. Um, I think one one day I went for like an entire day and met like six different doctors. So this, not only is, did I have to meet heart doctors, but I had to meet like GI, like everything because she was so complex that everything was connected to it too. And this um, was all in utero that you did all this? Yes. So everything was lined up and ready and all we had to do was wait for Miss Lincoln to come. Then February came because she was born February 23rd, but I always go over my due date for all my kids. Um, So I was 37 weeks pregnant and I had a OB in California as well that was watching me. And he was like, I don't want you traveling later than 34 weeks. He's going to come live in California for the last six weeks of your pregnancy. I was like, well, that's not going to really work because I have two other kids and um, my brother's getting married and I'm in the wedding and like it's my brother. So I want to be there. And he's like, um, okay, when's he getting married? I'm like, I'll be 37 weeks pregnant. And he's like, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah. So anyway, so I went to my brother's wedding the next morning, flew out 37 weeks pregnant. Thank God it was fine. He like made me call him when I landed. It was like a whole thing. When I got there, I had to have appointments twice a week, an ultrasound and like a non-stress test. Yeah. Yep. Um, Just like high risk (laughs) pregnancies, you know. So I had someone with me the entire time. I had so many friends, family, everybody would come out and like, okay, you stay for two days. And then the next person stays for two days. We almost have like a schedule. So what's kind of cool is before you're pregnant, they put you in an apartment and they pay for it. 
because oh my crazy. gosh that's amazing yeah so I had my own apartment and like I was working so I like worked at the apartment and like because I was like well I might as well work I've got nothing else to do no kids to take care of I might as well work so like my husband would come back and forth with the kids on the weekend so I was away from my girls though mm. and that was through this process being away from my kids looking back we would have changed that for sure that was really hard but then she was super critical so it's all, you know, you look back and you're like, oh, should I have done this? But it's hard. It's hard to know what's right. So one day out of my entire three weeks in um, in California before she was due, I had someone not with me. And I was like, it's fine. All my appointments have been fine. It's not a big deal. I'm 39 weeks pregnant at this point. And I go to my non-stress test and it's like going, and it's like dropping beats. And they mm-hmm. said, if she makes it to utero, she's the thing that we're going to know about is she's going to start going into heart block. So if she goes into heart block, you've got to get her out. So I call the OB. OB is like, you need to get your husband, have your husband go get your stuff from the apartment. You need to go straight to go check in at labor and delivery. And I'm like, well, my husband's not here. And he's like, okay, whoever's with you, grandma, friend, sister. I was like, I'm by myself. And he's like, okay, so you're going to need to go get your stuff from the apartment and come back. Like, but kind of hurry. And I'm like, Okay. So I like go get my stuff and I like come back and I drive myself. I walk myself in, check myself into labor and delivery. And meanwhile, my mom is freaking out like, oh my gosh, you're by yourself. You're going to have a baby by yourself. This is a heart baby, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, like, what else am I going to do? And that's like kind of my mentality is like, it is what it is. So we're going to make the best of the situation. How can we make the best of it rather than being like, poor me? Oh my gosh. Because if you do have that poor me attitude, it reflects on like your children and like everyone around you. And so I just had like the opposite attitude. Like we have to just become better. How can we become better? Isn't this so true? Like whether we have a good or bad attitude, we still have to go through whatever's in front of us. So Tana does. She gets her stuff, checks herself in and gets on the monitors. Luckily, her family gets there just in the nick of time. And she was born at like one in the morning, in the morning next day. Um, they whisked her away. I got to see her for like two seconds. They whisked her away to the NICU. They like put her on monitors, all this stuff. Um, I don't remember exactly any of it because I was my first C-section. Lots of like trauma was in it. I was in so much pain because they like didn't give me the proper pain meds and stuff. Yeah, so that was, it was kind of like a traumatic birth. And it was like kind of fast because she was like, we can't monitor. We got to get her out right now. And I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. So then I got to see her and I was up and walking like the next day because again, we have no other choice. Any NICU parent can understand this. When I had Jackson, I was up within a few hours before my epidural had even worn off to make sure I could get to the NICU to see my baby. I like met with the PA, the surgeon's assistant. Like I met with her in my gown. I don't even remember it, but like I joke with her. I'm friends with her now. And I'm like, remember that one time I like was sitting there with my gown and she's like, oh, it doesn't even matter. You are amazing. You know, I remember driving to the hospital when I was in labor with Jackson, Justin and I looking at each other, kind of breathing deep, just feeling like, okay, this is it. We don't know what's coming, but here we go. And I felt that way again during this story. So Despite all the odds, Lincoln arrives, and she's here. But before we find out what happens next, let's take a quick break. Reviews really help me grow a lot, so to encourage you guys to keep them coming, I'm going to share some of them. What happened to you? You're doing amazing, Chelsea. It's really hard to be the one who opens up first, and sometimes we just need someone to ask what happened to us. I'm so glad you started this. Emily Candelaria. Thanks, Emily. Emily. 
So we're back with Tana and Lincoln, and we hit the ground running. She went into surgery at 33 hours old. She got a pacemaker put in, and it was like uh, right on the middle of her chest, but she was so little. She was only like six pounds, but she was so little that like you could see the outline of the pacemaker. The pacemaker was like this pretty big, like, you know, and it was so sad. Like it was just her whole body and she's intubated and she has jaundice and the whole thing. It was just like so sad. And then she wasn't getting better. They were like, but she should be extubated by now. She should be making progress. And she just wasn't getting better. And they're like, "Uh uh-oh. Seven days later, she has sepsis and they had to get that pacemaker out. So seven days old, I hadn't even held her yet because she had so many things on her. And they were like, okay, so um, we're going to put her into surgery again. I'm like, uh, all righty then. What do we get? We have no, again, we have no other choice. So we're just like, okay. So we take her and whisk her away, take her pacemaker out. Well, then she had to be externally paced. So she had like these little boxes that went into her heart, into the leads and had leads on her heart. Well, if those boxes, if you, cause they were just like holding them. So when, if you held her, you had to hold her boxes and then like, if they got tugged and off her heart, like she's not paced anymore. So they were super dangerous. So like lots of wavering um, opinions about whether or not we should be able to hold her because they're so dangerous. Well, lots of people went to bat for us and I ended up getting to hold her and they were like, it's better for her to get held than to not get held and like take the risk. So we're going to do that. When we're put in these situations, we realize quickly that we have no control and I feel like you look for something to be in control of. So Tana did what she could. The thing I controlled, I was able to control as I was like, I can be there every day. I can advocate for her. I can be her voice and I can pump. So I'll give her breast milk. So that's what I did. I had like a schedule and I like met with lactation consultants and that's how I felt like I was able to help her. I just did it. So I ended up pumping for her for 13 months. This is her whole life. Um, longest I've ever like breastfed any of my kids. She was the chunkiest heart baby I've ever seen. So then she was externally paced for like six weeks. I think she had to go to the cath lab several times. She had to go to IR. She had to do a bunch of different things. She was on a feeding tube. She never could feed by mouth. Um, lots of just like little procedures, but we were there every single day. Um, my husband ended up being able to work remotely. So he didn't have to go back and forth, but our girls stayed away. Um, just cause it was super, I mean, it was just a really hard time. It was so touch and go. Did every they day. stay but, in Arizona or were they in California at the apartment? No, they were in Arizona, which oh was my really gosh. hard. Oh. So like my mom, my mom stayed with us. Um, she, they had like a little, you could park your, your like trailer or motor home, um, in like the parking lot right by Stanford. So she stayed there. We actually stayed in Ronald McDonald, which another shout out. Oh my gosh. That's like a godsend to people. They're amazing. Like if you can donate, donate. They're just so amazing. They made our girls feel comfortable. They made us feel comfortable. We would come back from the hospital to like change or whatever it might've been. Cause we couldn't stay the night there for the first, her first day because it was like an older hospital. So they, you couldn't stay the night. So we'd have to stay the night at Ronald McDonald and then come back in the mornings, which we did. We would go stay as long as we could go back. I'd pump, I'd call at three in the morning, call at five in the morning, come back by seven every day. But they had dinner for us every evening because of volunteers. And just, we, we try to go back and we try to volunteer now just to give back. Cause it's just like a godsend. It's the, the best thing. So On the occasion that the girls did get to come visit, they got to stay at the Ronald McDonald house as well. And they loved it. The people of Ronald McDonald, they treated them like celebrities. They got to go into the magical closet for their birthdays. And 
Yeah, it's really cool. So yeah, so then that was probably the hardest part was being away from them. We look back and we're like, oh, I probably should have brought them. But again, I couldn't care for them and care for Lincoln at the same time. Like there's no way. I experienced the same crippling weight of having one child in the hospital who has critical needs and your other child or children at home needing you, but you can't be there for them. The mom guilt is real, but you do what you got to do. First stay in the hospital. She ended up going back in for another pacemaker. I think she was six weeks old and then still wasn't getting better. And then we had to start tracking her weight. I made this like poster board with a weight tracker so that we could all be on the same page. And at this point, we were best friends with everybody because we saw them every single day. As you know, the CVICU is a really sad place. Like you see people code, you see people pass away, you meet people, then you the next day they're not there. So like we did the highs and lows with everybody. I met some really amazing heart moms that I'm still friends with. After 90 something days, Lincoln moved to the step-down unit and then eventually got to go home. But she, when she came home, she was on oxygen, a feeding pump 24-7, and then obviously sternal precautions and all that stuff too because she was still fresh from surgery. So she can't feed by mouth. She can't go into a room without being on oxygen. So it was like a lot. I learned so much. Like people will be like, are you a nurse? I'm like, no, I just had to be, I had to learn these things to advocate for her. Because what do you do? Again, what do you do? I'm like, I'll just learn what that acronym means. Like a doctor leaves and he, I don't know what he's saying. I'm going to research it until I know. Can you imagine that trip home? I barely made it from Phoenix to Queen Creek. And they were traveling a whole state. I'm so stressed just thinking about it. We stopped at a hotel because it was like a ridiculous amount of hours. I think it was like 17-hour mm-hmm. trip. or I don't even remember. But it was a lot of hours. So we were like, we need to stop at a hotel and rest. And I'm like, if she can't have germs. If she gets even the slightest of cold, she's down. So we were like sanitizing everything. And we had like a system that we figured out. But it was very stressful. Before she even came into the house, we had to like sanitize everything from the hospital. I'm like, I'm not bringing any infections home with me. Our girls had to learn like a new way of life. Like if they went to church, they came home and like undressed in the garage before Mm -hmm. they and then went straight to the shower. And then they could come and see her, you know, like our life changed dramatically with like how we acted. But again, I I put on this front that like, it's fine. We just have to follow the procedures. So Lincoln was home for 10 weeks, but being home with a heart baby doesn't mean just being home. She had doctor's appointments at least once a week and a doctor's appointment with a heart kiddo is no small feat. Luckily, she had her mother-in-law to always come and help her because she couldn't even get her out of the car by herself. And I thought about summarizing this part and editing it out, but to really see into a life of a heart mom, I kept it. So we talked to her interstate nurse once a week. We had a call every single week. We went to the cardiologist on one week, pediatrician on the next, and she had to get like weight checks. She had to get echoes. So all the things. And then on top of it, she had to go to pulm, she had pulmonary, she had to go to GI, she had to go to feeding therapy, like all the other things too. So essentially she had two appointments a week. So my mother-in-law came to a ton with me. Obviously I could never go by myself because I couldn't even get her out of the car without having somebody hold all the stuff. Um, Cause she also had her feeding tube because she kept like retching and like desatting if she like they considered it must be reflex because she was on like 13 medications at one point every single day twice a day that was fun too yeah which um, you have to try to schedule the doctor's appointment all 15 medicines it's not 
No, there's no way to explain it. You just have to live through it. And it's gonna make me cry just thinking about it. No, it's so and like, I remember I had like a medication schedule. And then like some meds would need to be at like noon, and we wouldn't be back by noon. So I'd bring the meds in like a like a refrigerated like tote and had all drawn up. I think you were the one that actually taught me. You did. You were like, save every single syringe and pre do that. That changed my life. It See, did. I he, forgot you did, taught me that until you just told me. <laughs> I've taught a lot of people that because it saved me. I think somebody else taught me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so helpful. And, like, the good syringes, not the cheap ones. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, we pre-did all – we had, like, med prep instead of, like, meal prep. We med prepped. <laughs> and we did that, like, on Sundays for the week and anything we could do. And then I'd, like, give her meds in the middle of the day. I had alarm set for everything and – it was a lot. I mean, I thank God I have like an a OCD brain that it like worked well. Like I was like a to-do list and checklist, but yeah. Are you exhausted yet? I know for me, it was very exhausting. And even though we were home, it was almost more difficult. But after 10 weeks of being home, Lincoln was ready for surgery number two. And we came back in September for another open heart surgery to like give her a bigger size of her shunt because she got a shunt the first time. And it was like, minuscule but now that she was bigger she would need a bigger one a lot of heart kids struggle to gain weight but lincoln was different and when we came back they were like oh my gosh she's like tripled in size but like she was so short but just plump <laughs> so i was like hey i've just been like feeding her you she's on 24-hour feeds what do you expect you know you're like you said gain weight bam she was yeah. she was the chunk I'll probably the chunkiest kid on the floor when we met oh she was so chunky yeah this time, they brought the whole family, and they got to be at the Ronald McDonald house again. And we brought our girls this time. We were like, we're going, we're bringing our kids. We brought my mother-in-law. She helped watch the girls at Ronald McDonald. They had so many activities for them to do. They had camp. They had, they had field trips. It was so many fun things for them to do. They actually asked if they can go back. I'm like, yeah, I don't think you're really understanding what that means. But, yeah, they, they really loved it. So we went back, and she had another um, – open heart surgery. And then she had two weeks later, she got a G tube put in. Lincoln did really well with these procedures and they got to go home again. But this time they realized they qualified for a nurse. Like, holy cow, you're doing this by yourself. Like she, she like qualifies for a nurse. And I was like, huh, what do you mean? She's like, like a real nurse, like that will come to your house and like care for her. Like she could probably qualify for 24 hour care. I'm like, oh, that's nice to know. Like I'm not a nurse. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but obviously somebody thought, well, I think there was disconnect with, like, California and, like, Arizona. So we didn't know that. So now she's nine months old and now finally getting care at home. A nurse. Oh, my gosh. So we got a nurse for about six weeks, and it was amazing. I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I I was able to go. I mean, I didn't go far, but I would, like, go to to, we have an at-home gym. I'm like, I could go work out, like, and not, like, be stressed. And it was amazing. There was a point when Jackson was withdrawing from drugs and it was hard to be able to leave him because I felt so alone. Like, cause I was the only one that knew my husband worked and he didn't know the med schedule. He didn't know anything. So it was like solely on me So to, yeah. to have that, to go be able to go away for a second and not worry that they're going to die while you're like just taking a second. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, oh. I know. It was like, <laughs> Oh, it was like, I mean, yeah. Yeah. But Another thing, too, for anyone that's listening that, like, doesn't know this, but AZIP is, like, the most amazing 
Arizona early intervention program. They come out and they evaluate to see if you qualify. When they came out and I was like telling them, they're like, oh, you don't really have to tell us anything. Like just looking at what you're doing right now for her, you're like, she's going to qualify. I'm like, okay. So basically they pay for everything. They pay for, like, I had a physical therapist come once a week. I had an occupational therapist coming once a week. Speech. She went to feeding therapy. She, all her travel to go to California was paid through, paid for, because it was a secondary insurance, which is, like, such, is so nice. And then they come to you for the therapies rather than you having to take her, the immune-compromised kid, away. So AZIP is a great, great resource if no one knows about that. I also have had a really great experience with AZIP. And Jackson actually was able to qualify for the insurance and some respite services so that I could take a break every once in a while when I needed to. And this is actually some of the best advice that I got was to take advantage of the resources that they offer, learn what's out there, and say yes to everything. If you're out there and you need assistance with your children, look into Arizona Early Intervention Program. It's a pretty amazing program, and it helps more than just medically ill children. It also helps children with special needs, um, behavioral issues, things like that. It's a great resource. Unfortunately, Tana could only take advantage of this nurse for about six weeks because then Lincoln got really sick. Then, so then she got super sick in and out of the hospital at PCH because um, she would just keep getting rhinovirus, which is basically the common cold for all of us, but for her, it was deadly. And this is when I meet Tana. So we were in and out of the ER six times from end of November or mid-November till February, which doesn't sound like a long time. Uh, yes, it does. But sometimes it'd be we we're home, home for 24 hours, back to the ER, and it was horrible. We we're discharged on Christmas Eve and then back in two days after. Like it was, it was just she was so sick. Like you just, I, we couldn't get her better and like. They didn't know how to care for her just because she was so complicated. Like, and I, at some points, like I was the one running around. Like I was like, okay, here's the thing, you know, cause she was so complicated that, you know, like, you know, him best. Yeah. We were in and out. And then finally, um, I think it was on Valentine's day. She was at home and our amazing cardiologist, Dr. Stock, again, I would be calling him and I'm like, okay, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. What do you want me to do? And he's like, I think at that point he was like in England. So it was like midnight and he's like calling me back. He was like, oh, gosh, I don't really know. So he, anything we could do to manage at home, give her extra lace, Lasix, try to give her this, that or whatever. We could, we would try. But at that point I was like, gosh, I just don't feel like she's progressing. Like, I feel like I need to go in. Well, thank God I took her in. I don't know why I thought like I would be faster than an ambulance. <laughs> so I drove her, but her pulse ox was on. Her oxygen is on, but it's at like maxed out on two liters. I'm oh driving gosh. to PCH. Her oxygen is just dropping. Her stats are like in the 50s. Was it then in you? the 40s? Just me in the car driving. Well, at one point, her stats were super, super low and her like oxygen tank runs out and I'm driving on the freeway. I'm like, well, how am I going to fix? And like changing, I don't know if you've ever changed like an um, mm-hmm. oxygen. They're hard. Like they're yeah. hard. There's like so, a tool you have to like, yeah, Jackson oh, was on oxygen at home too. So yeah. It's horrible. It's super hard. And like most of the time my husband would do it because it's like kind of like tough. Anyway, so I like changed it on the side of the road. And I think it was like at Bethany's home road, super sketch, like stuff in my car, whatever, changed it. 
and got back on the road. Well, because she was at two liters, she was flying through oxygen in like 15 Because they're these tiny little tanks, like. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we get into the PCH parking lot and her oxygen runs out. And all of a sudden I see her sass and they're like 40, 39, 38, 37. And I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So I'm like hurrying, trying to get her oxygen tank fixed in the parking lot. I'm like freaking out. But at that point I'm shaking because I'm so nervous because I can't figure it out. And I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, like what am I going to do? So I like fix it out. I get her oxygen tank and I get her up to like 45, like whoop, big whoop at this point. Like, but it's better than the thirties. Right. So I like rush her in. She's in like, obviously I have to take a stroller anywhere. So I like rush her in and the, there's like a line at registration. I didn't even go to the ER because they had already had a room for her. So it's like a line at registration. And I'm like, you can just see I'm like anxious, you know? And the, I finally get my thing and my guy's like, okay, just have a seat. And he's like, we're going to have you fill out some paperwork. And I was like, listen, I like, am not trying to be rude at all. And I was like, but I have a, and I was told, I've learned you say blue baby. They under, they get to you yeah. real quick. And I was like, I have a blue baby back here and she's going to code any second. If you don't get me up for the CDICU, they have a room waiting for me. I just need to go and we can fill out registration later. And he was like, okay. And I was like, I'm going to push this code button. If you don't, if you don't put me right in. And he was like, uh, uh, okay, go ahead. And I was like, that was okay, really okay. nice. If that's really how you said it, I would have been like, everybody move. <laughs> yeah. I like, that's how I did. I was like, I'm going to push this code button. I'm not trying to be like crazy. I just want you to know she's blue. She's in like, you know, and I kind of like just was super, try to stay super calm. And I was like, but if you don't want me to push the code button, just let me go right now. He was like, okay, go ahead. So I went up there and I get up to the room and the doctors are all waiting for me. Like they all knew I get into the room and they're like getting her all set up on the monitors. And all these doctors are like, you need to push this and all these meds to calm her down. But she's like, at this point, like I'm anxious. You know, if you're anxious, your mm-hmm. kids are anxious. The energy of the room. So she's anxious. So she's desatting even more so. So they're like naming off all these like methadone and all this stuff. And I'm like, so I like the first time I've ever like yelled and I was like, knock it off. No one is going to put any drugs in her. Like no one. Absolutely not. Let her calm down. Like after she calms down, then we can figure out where we want to go with. And then they all like were like, "Oh crap," <laughs> you know. Good but job. like I just felt like you can't. They were all just panicking. Drugs. They were panicking. And truthfully, looking back, she was in such bad shape. Like I should have called an ambulance. Like I don't know what I was thinking. I just was thinking I can help you because I can get in the car right now, and an ambulance might take three <laughs> three minutes. Like I literally <laughs> have one right around. <laughs> anyway, so and I had never called an ambulance before, and I knew they would freak out if they saw her like that, and they wouldn't take her to PCH. They would take her to the closest hospital. Anyway, so you you know you live yeah. and learn and all the things. So um, they didn't they didn't uh, push drugs because I said not to. She did calm down. She was fine. But then that night she ended up coding. So that was the first time ever coding. And crazy enough, my husband had just gotten there from work. It was like seven o'clock and she was kind of just acting like super weird. I was on the phone with this heart mom that I knew from California. And I was on the phone with her and I was like, hey, let me call you back. Like she's kind of acting like super weird and I feel like something's going to happen. She was like kind of squirmy and all of a sudden she just like went limp. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so then I called the nurse in and I called the code. And they got her back super quick. That was did the you first stay time. in the room that did you stay in the room 
every time she coded, I stayed in the room. I don't know what, like, people, like, talk about it, and they're like, and they try to push me out, and I'm like, I'm fine. I and, stayed like, in the room. I, it's, like, does something come over you where you're just like, I didn't ever, like, get hysterical. I just was, like, in, like, mom mode. Slow like, motion. Everything slows really down, and it feels yeah. like kind of like that weird, like, blur around, and it's very focusing, and it just feels quiet even though it's really loud weird it's the weirdest feeling I feel the same I way freak I freak out like later though <laughs> me, too. me too like I remember leaving after like everything settled and I like sat down and I'm like oh dear god what just happened like I don't even know it's just like so weird but I feel like it's like that slow-mo on your phone like the camera part mm-hmm. where you went to the slow-mo video you're just like what's happening I remember being on the phone with my husband he wasn't there and she coded and I was like Okay, they're doing compression. Okay, okay. Two more breaths. Okay, they're switching out. Okay, her stats are this. Okay, they just shocked her. I'm like, how how am I talking with this? Like, and the the nurse next to me kept looking at me like, you're not freaking out. You're literally just like monotone. That's what they told us too. They were like, usually we kick the parents out, but you guys were like, you handled that really well. Are you okay? And we're both like, yeah. And then we went home into the McDonald McDonald house and I lost it. And I knew it was the same. <laughs> exactly. No, it's scary because you're like, what just happened? But honestly, she coded one time when we weren't there. And that, I freaked out way more than I ever did when I was there. It was really healing for me to talk about coding with someone and realize that their experience was a lot like mine. So I'm so grateful Tana did this interview. So Lincoln just was not getting better. With some frustrating situations at PCH and the complexity of it, they decided to take her to her home hospital. And we ended up life flighting her back to California on her first birthday. So I consider it her private jet back to her. Yes. She got a private jet on her first birthday. I flew with her, went to California. They got to California and they like did like a birthday celebration for her. They had cupcakes and they had her room decorated. It was adorable. Aww. So we came back and... Then the next two weeks, I think it was, she coded like four times in two weeks. It was awful. Like mm. she just kept coding. We had no idea. She had fevers and not fevers. She couldn't go to the IR. She couldn't go to the cath lab because she just kept getting fevers. And we're like, we have no idea what's going on. And then we had some really hard conversations. And then like her final two weeks of her life were just the worst. It was like coding and um her pacemaker battery died in her body which is like unheard of yeah like people have like 12 years oh yeah like and she'd just gotten it in September so it's so her body was working so much so like I remember a fellow he came in and her battery had died like 6 a.m on Saturday morning and all night I have a doctor literally sitting right next to her watching her all night she's like I have no idea what this is like we've called the electric electric physiologist like I have no idea what's happening right now like I don't know how she's sustaining a heartbeat like she should be dead like honestly I don't understand how she like because if she didn't have her pacemaker like she wasn't going to live like that's how we thought and she like sustained all night like that was like so cool I was like yeah she's like doing it you know like Like, beating your own heart yeah so then I was like she doesn't even need a pacemaker right like it's fine let it be in there whatever well come to find out that so he comes at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning with the other surgeon and he comes in and he's like giving us pre-op stuff and I'm like okay well 
And she, at this point, then she started to look physically sick. Her eyes were starting to get swollen. Her eyes were barely open. And I said, I don't really want to send her into surgery. She's like really sick. And they had, they considered that she was septic at that point. They like knew something was going on and that's why their battery died. She was septic. And I was like, I don't really want to send her into surgery. She's super sick. Like she's, it's not going to be good. You never go into surgery sick. Like that's a big, huge rule, you know? And he was like, well, and he just straight up like told me, well, if um, you can either send her into surgery and hope she comes out or you can not send her into surgery and she's going to die. So probably either way she's going to die. I was like, already then. He said it like like that? Yeah. Like straight up. Like, but it's almost what I needed to hear too, because like, if you would have been like, well, you know, like it would, I just needed to hear like either you're going to send her in and hope that she makes it, but probably will die or you don't send her in. It's like a death sentence regardless. And I was like, okay. He's like, so I was like, all right, I guess she's going into surgery then. And so she went into surgery. She survived the surgery, but then she never opened her eyes after that. So now we were getting into some sacred territory and Tana was so gracious and kind and just allowed me to ask all of the hard questions that a lot of people want to know, but no one can ask. Did you get to hold her at all? Yeah. So throughout like her hospital stays, we did get to hold her. And then, um, but the last like few, gosh, the last two weeks of her life, we didn't really get to a little bit, like some nurses that like knew us really well would be like, don't care what the orders say you're holding her today. And I'm like, oh, like, yeah, they were amazing. Um, But yeah, we got to hold her after she, well, while she was passing, we held her. My whole family was there. My husband's side of the family was there. My girls were there. Um, Yeah, it was, ugh, that was hard. But yeah, looking back, like my, the cardiologist that was with us um, throughout our Stanford journey she was like I've never seen the last two weeks that intense of some of a kid's life she's like you guys went through a lot those last two weeks because the one time um I skipped over this story but the one time we weren't there when she coded we were at the Ronald McDonald house we had just left for the night she was kind of touch and go but I felt like she would she was finally in a spot where I could leave her for just you know just a few minutes to to get some rest, to get some dinner, you know, and we get a phone call that she had coded and we need to get here as soon as possible. So we get back there and the a surgeon is in her room getting ready to slice her neck open to put ECMO in her. Yeah. And bedside. Bedside ECMO. And my husband and I had always had the conversation that him and I never wanted her to be on ECMO because I never wanted to be the one to pull the plug. I always yeah. wanted someone else, you know, that was my whole mindset was like, if this is going to happen, like let nature kind of do like whatever God wants. Not, it's not up to us, but if we put her on ECMO, then it is up to us now because I'm putting the machine saying yes or no. And obviously I know it's a life-saving device. So did they put it on her? But she literally was on, like had the scalpel on her neck, like ready to go. And I was like, stop, no, I, we don't want ECMO. And then the doctor came out and he, she's like, what's going on? What? And I was like, we never wanted ECMO. And he was like, what? I never knew this. And I'm like, he's like, you have 10 seconds to decide if you want ECMO or not. And I'm like, 10 seconds. So I like just closed my eyes. I prayed. 
and all of a sudden the surgeon's like, her heart's beating. I was like, oh my gosh, no way. So he's like, okay, let, let me hold back for a second. And he steps back and he's like, we don't need it. Her heart's beating. After that, we had a care conference about the end of life, how we wanted it to look. So that's another reason why care, like care plans are so important to like know what your end of life like looks like, because otherwise you have situations like that and a family might have a completely opposite view yeah. of what they really want to happen. And that's how we felt. We're like, she's so sick right now. Like if her body's telling us, like that's what we got to do. So, so did you, so, then, so you didn't have to pull any plugs? So essentially, I guess essentially we did pull the plug, but like her body showed us that like she wasn't. It was done. It was, it was never going to come back. Um, so did they like what she was intubated or no? Yeah, they had an excavator, but you know what's even crazier, which is like such a crisis right now with like the fentanyl thing, like a fentanyl crisis that we have in our world right now. But like, that's what they put, that's what she died on. Like, that's what they up her fentanyl to like relax her and make her more comfortable. Isn't that freaky? Like to think like, oh, just makes me like sick to my stomach. Did they detach her from everything and then did you just hold her? Yeah. So then like, it was kind of like a bittersweet moment because we never held her without her attached to something. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool. Cause like we got to like, essentially like twirl around with her and like be like a normal, like kid. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And my whole family and my husband's side got to hold her. Did huh. your girls, did your girls hold her? Yeah, they wanted to. And I kind of let it up to them. That was a big thing. Um, we weren't sure like how to do that, but the doctor that was on shift was so, she was so cool. Um, she's just like a super good doctor. She's super blunt. And she was like, look, when things happen in kids' lives, they are not dumb. They know what's happening. You just have to be honest with them. Like mm-hmm. you literally just say straight up what's happening. So we just, we like told them the truth. And I think that like helped them so much and like other things too, that they like understand I don't know. They just have like a different compassion towards like certain things just because we were just honest with them. And so, and I just said, cause I was like, I don't want them to remember her like that. I'd rather them remember her like how her little chubby self, like her cute self. But even the last few days, like she didn't look like herself. So it wasn't mm-hmm. a pretty picture regardless. Um, but yeah, so they did. They, I just said, do you guys want to hold her? And they wanted to. So I let them. Um, I think Monroe, my oldest, that was five at the time, um, she wanted to hold her first and we let her hold her first. So, um, and yeah. she, how long did it take for her to like, because they keep breathing for a while, right? No, it was so sick. It was like it was instant, 30, like maybe 30 seconds. Like it was that she was that sick. Usually oh. they do. And then they do like a <gasps> gas, but she like every single machine was keeping her alive. It was really bad. So you were all like holding her after she had passed and. Yeah. Like, so I was, I think I was, I think they, I can't remember if they extubated while I was holding her or if they extubated on the table, then gave her to me. I can't exactly remember that, but either way, like it was instant. Like they extubated and like time of death was like not even a minute later. Yeah. It was really bad. The last few days were like super traumatic. And then we like had to go to Ronald McDonald cause we had to stay there and like do end of life stuff. So we had to stay there for like another week. So that was hard too. Cause now you're around all these families 
that like you know and they know of you and and it is hard to be the one like even asking you to tell the story there's a guilt like it's not fair that I got to keep my warrior and you did it I know it's hard it's like a hard navigation with like that kind of stuff but I don't know I just I like I try to keep the perspective of she was here for a reason and even if that's for my husband and I'd have a voice to help others then that was like the reason but as when I was in the hospital I remember being just in the parking lot crying and just really just saying like god don't make him suffer anymore just take him so like is it hard to is it hard to go from feeling like you want them to stay alive and you're trying everything you can and then is there like a peace that comes when they leave and you finally have that weight lifted off you that I mean it's harder for the heart warrior but like as a mom or a parent of a heart warrior it's really really hard and the weight like with a heart warrior that's still living the weight never gets lighter it's always there so is it lighter? yeah (laughs) so like uh, that's like such like a convicting question because when I was going through all this I was like god like just take her like and then like I can this sounds horrible. Like I can have my life back. Like this is a lot like, but I feel like you always think like, just like you always think the grass is greener. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, I always was like, if he, she was just like, goes to heaven. She's whole, she's going to be happier. Like, let's be real. Even yeah. though she was happy, like she's going to be ultimately happier being like, not so broken and like so many procedures being done and whatever. And then I can like, be a mom to my other kids and like you know and have like where I can go anywhere so I thought like oh god it would it would be a lot easier if I didn't have to med prep and Mm -hmm. gosh my life would be so much easier and easier and easier but like on the flip side grief is a million times harder than I ever would have had to do with her like really oh my god like but I would say it's like a different kind like it's like a like the weight of like am I doing enough um, am I honoring her? Am I being a good enough mom? Like that kind of stuff, like stuff that you don't really mm-hmm. think about, you know, like stuff that I don't know, the guilt. Um, Do you feel guilty, like worried about forgetting her? Like you don't want her yeah. to be forgotten? Oh, that's always, always the concern. Um, but like for Thanksgiving, now that we have like, knocks and he's just like crazy um but he's busy so like you almost forgot like Thanksgiving we didn't go to her gravesite we always go to our gravesite on the morning of Thanksgiving but like it's busy now like it's just hard so then we felt like such jerks that we didn't get there and then Christmas day we were going but like it was so hard to like it's so hard to balance your other kids and how like how do I say you need to leave so we can go honor your sister it's just a really hard balance so yeah yeah it's just really hard so I'd say like it was you thought like I I honestly have those like thoughts like it would be so much easier without her having without me having to care for her but this side is I mean the physical part is it but the mental and emotional is so much harder like I could do I was physically really tired caring for her but like the guilt and the emotional part is 
heavier beyond words oh my gosh so much heavier like the lighter the load you could say is lighter yeah. but then you know like thank but you then, for sharing that with me because yeah. at, like it, it, I think it's a question people wonder and no one is really brave enough to ask so thank you for even well. letting and me I think, ask that and I would even say like don't it and if anyone's listening that has a heart warrior that they're like in the trenches that it's you're not alone to think those thoughts because I thought them all the time and I was just like like just help me like navigate this like how do I move along with this like is this really my life from here on out so I always have to be this cautious for my whole life like this isn't how I this isn't how I wanted to I wanted her to play sports I wanted her to do this like this isn't what I asked for that's kind of my thing yeah. I was like I didn't I didn't sign up for this like why are you punishing me um so don't be don't feel like you're alone in those thoughts those thoughts are so normal um but and they're okay and you can have those thoughts and still love your warriors yeah and yeah. it doesn't mean you don't love them. It just means you love them more because you're trying to make it so that they feel free too. So how does life go on after all of this? How are your girls? They're okay. They're, um, they go through moments. Um, that's probably, it's been hard, like navigating through like what grief with them has been hard. We went to this um, uh, grief counselor for kids called Billy's Place, which is an amazing organization, nonprofit they're amazing. Billy's Place is a great place for kids grieving siblings or parents or grandparents or whoever, uncles, aunts, sisters, siblings. Um, but they, we went there for a while and it really helped them, I think, just like help channel their feelings. But they still have some issues. Like kind of like us, we kind of bottle it and then the holidays come and we lose it. And they're like, why are you losing it? And I'm like, oh, because I'm sad, you know, and they're like, they're sad too, but they channel it by through anger or whatever it might be. Um, so it's been, they're they're okay, but I feel like one thing they have a lot of perspective for other kids that are going through things. I have some friends that go to school with them um, and they lost a sister not too long ago. And my girls have been able to like really mm. connect with them. Um, Amazing. So I think that, I think that's one thing that they have that I could never teach them is like the compassion for those kids and like the understanding. So they're doing okay, but it's, it's an, everyday thing it's never gonna end you know you guys talk about her every day yeah I wouldn't say like it's like a uh like calculated conversation but it'll be something so simple like a butterfly like oh hey Lincoln she's definitely like part of our conversations but not like it's so just normal like she's just part of it you know yeah like she's still just part of the family and how is Lincoln's dad shortly after my husband decided that his grief was going to be channeled through a nonprofit, so he created our nonprofit that we have now, and it's called Mission 228. And its purpose is to raise money to give prospective nurses a $10,000 scholarship towards nursing school or whatever it might be, some kind of schooling. And the reason why it's called Mission 228 is that our mission is to create nurses that impacted us 228 days of her life. So 228 days of our life were spent with a nurse in a hospital room of Lincoln's like 365, I think it was 385 days of her life. So we um, created Mission 228 because of that, that these nurses, they make or break your day, as you know. Um, And I want to say out of the entire journey, we probably only had a handful of nurses that we like didn't really connect with, which is saying so much, which means we need to, so our goal is like to continue to create these amazing nurses that have that bond with those families that made our day. How can people participate in your foundation? 
So lots of different ways. So we can, um, we have events throughout the year that you can come and attend to. And all the information is on the website, which is mission228.com. And it's mission and then 228 in the numbers. Dot com. You can donate any time of the year. That always helps. Um, we have an Instagram. I think it's the handles like at mission228inc. And we have a Facebook too. So then we have a scholarship luncheon every March and we like present our scholarship. It's $10,000, which is, is a lot of money. How do you choose bring- a nurse? Do people like write in? Okay. That's so hard. A- that's hard. So we have an, um, an application process that they have to write a letter. And then they have to get letters of recommendation. And then, like, they try to tell us how they would be a link to our mission. And it's so extremely hard to pick one person. Like, every year we're like, we got to raise more money so we can pick five (laughs) nurses. It's really hard. Like, it's probably the hardest thing. We all cry. Like, we have a board meeting and we cry. (laughs) It's, like, a big thing. But it's it's amazing. And um, my husband's, like, we he's a CEO. Um, He's the press. But um, we kind of all do it together, and it's his way of, like, channeling his grief and, like, putting his giving back for Lincoln, and so it's great. It's been it's been good. What did you do for your grief? Um, well, we're still working on that. No, I just yeah. feel like I, <laughs> um, I still, I feel like I still kind of try to, like, help heart moms. I've had a lot of, like, random people be like, hey, this certain person's being diagnosed or whatever, and I'm like, hey. Let me, I remember when I was first diagnosed, one of the moms was like, don't give her my number to reach out to me. Like, I know she's not going to do that. I'm going to call her. And they, she called me. And I just felt like that was such a relief for me not to be like, hi, I'm Tana. And I just, you know, like for her to call me and already know kind of background was just such a huge relief for me. So I just always try to give that advice or we um, do bereavement boxes. That's another way you can help Aww. is you can help supply bereavement boxes. Um, but in the hospital, um, after you lose a child, you get to leave. Like at PCH, I've probably donated over 500 boxes to them. But it's like a little box that has um, just little things that like help you remind you of your little one that passed. Um, mm. So there's just like little things that have Lincoln's story and like our mission and our little postcard about like our foundation and then um if I always keep some on hand here so if anyone ever tells me that that so-and-so passed away or they lost their twins or whatever it might be I always make it a point to like try to give them a bereavement box and write them a personalized note um just so they don't ever feel forgotten our goal is to like on their angel anniversary I always try to reach out to my friends that I know about and like reach Aww. out just like hey thinking of you and just praying for you today and hope you find some winks from you know your your little one today or whatever so that's kind of oh how gosh. I channel it helping others that's amazing. whether that's helping me I don't know but <laughs> I feel like hey. it does I don't know why some people get to keep their warriors and some people don't and that we just have to give to God but I do know that I am so grateful for the time that Tana spent at PCH where she met me and she taught me how to med prep and she taught me about a organization called Hope Kids that provides fun activities for families. And she really just helped me realize that this Heart Mom community was a community and that I wasn't in this alone. And there was other moms, other people like me in the same boat who knew exactly what I was going through. And I could not be more grateful. And Tana and I don't really 
talk very often and we're kind of estranged now. But I'm so grateful that she did this podcast. And I'm so grateful she's in this community because she definitely uplifts and helps others. And with that, I asked, and I'll always ask, what do you wish people saw beyond your white picket fence? So everyone always thinks we're like super strong, like, oh, I could never do that. You're just so strong. I can never do that. And that it really didn't affect us because we don't show it. So I think it's for us, I think we just show we the perspective we've gained from having Lincoln is shown in different ways. So I just think that if we can't, beyond my like picket fence, is like, don't judge people by like what they're like out side says and like dig deeper about like why they are the way they are um so for me like everyone thinks I'm so strong and I like they can never do it but everyone has it in them if they're if you're challenged to it you're gonna do anything you can to save your child so I think they just I it's hard for us um to navigate sometimes because people do think we're just so strong so we it doesn't affect us. And I, it obviously does affect us doing these podcasts shows me how much healing I still have to do. Um, but I think because we don't necessarily talk about the hard times as much and we always are pretty positive people, um, people don't think it affects us. And it really does. does. It make you feel kind of like you're not allowed, like, because you have, everyone's like kind of so strong. And so then you feel like I have to be strong because everyone thinks I'm strong when really like actually, being strong is actually kind of falling apart and letting yourself grieve a little bit. Maybe I don't yeah. know. I have no advice because I didn't go through the same journey. So, yeah, I know that's 100%. Like you just feel like you always have to kind of be always on and never um, falter. And it's hard. It's just, you know, I'll have a moment. I was just this weekend. I was at my husband's family Christmas and I like his aunt made everyone stockings and she made Lincoln a stocking. I like lost it. I was like, but I felt like I had to like move away from everyone and not show anyone that I was crying. But it's like, why? Why can't I cry? So I think that's probably that's probably hard because like people do see us like happy go lucky. You know, we're coaching our kids sports and we do all these things and there's anniversaries and there's things that they know affect us. But because I don't outwardly say it all the time, they don't think it does. So. Yeah, it's hard. It's a it's a big burden, I would say. Not a burden, but it's a big um maybe you can fill in the the words I'm meaning to say. Like, um, it's just a big weight, really. Yeah. Not, not burden like you would rather not have it, but just yeah. that weight is kind of always there. Yeah. And for I don't sure. think I don't I I really don't think it'll ever go get easy. It is no. No, for sure. Whew, that was a good one. Thanks so much for joining this episode of Beyond the Picket Fence with Chelsea. Like, subscribe, share, leave a review. Did you stay past the end again? Wow, you're committed. So as a reward, here's some food for thought. And that's kind of another like tidbit of things. I've learned to not say like, as long as the baby's healthy, it doesn't matter. Because even I would never, I don't love her any different because she wasn't healthy. Like, I don't know. I just such a like thing that we all say that people don't even realize like oh that's like probably not something I should say okay this is real at the end goodbye bye now toodaloo ta-ta for now bye buddy hope you find your dad (laughs) it's 12 a.m good night